up, everybody? You're now at your favorite stop for all things sports, politics, and culture. It's the Wake Up and Win podcast with Devon Pouncey, a production of ThatCast Network. Hey now, say now, you're tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. We are here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, at the Living the Dream Studios. I don't have D-Boy alongside me today, but I do have a very special guest um, that I'm honored to have here. He's actually no stranger to this podcast. He's been here, was, is it once before, twice before? A couple times, A couple yeah. times, huh? So yeah, this might be appearance number three. It is. I think it is on the Wake <laughs> Up and Win podcast. Um, but we have Dr. Jules Boykoff here in studio with us today. How you doing, Dr. Boykoff? I'm great. Really happy to be here, Devon. Thank you. Indeed, indeed. Happy to have you. Um, so yeah, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Jules Boykoff is, um, he's a professor at Pacific University, poli sci, um, political science professor at Pacific University. He was actually my professor at Pacific University while I attended there as well. Um, So, you know, he's somebody who I really respect when it comes to his knowledge amongst really a whole lot of things, but um, especially when it comes to the intersectionality of sports and politics. Uh, He is uh, used to be a professional soccer player. Um, played for the U.S. men's national team. What year was that? Oh, <laughs> back in the late 80s and early 90s. Late yeah. 80s, early 90s. <laughs> okay, okay. So, yeah, he's got some experience playing on the U.S. national team. And for those of you who aren't familiar with who he is, he's, uh, I would consider, one of the more prominent names when it comes to kind of um, the academia, when it comes to the Olympics and the politics of the Olympics. Um, but the man is a lot more thorough and in-depth than just that. And in fact, he recently wrote an article, he co-wrote an article with Dave Zirin, who's also a well-respected name uh, in the media landscape when it comes to the intersection of sports and politics about the protests that have taken place recently in the MLS, which is Major League Soccer, um, right here at Timber Stadium. Um, There was, you know, the MLS essentially banned the iron front flag and symbolization of the iron front uh, from being able to be displayed at Timbers matches or at all major league soccer matches. Um, But here in Portland, there's been a lot going on when it comes to Antifa, um, when it comes to the symbolization that uh, iron front stands for and just protesting and rallying and I guess I would just flat out say picking and choosing sides when it comes to where folks stand. So mm-hmm. before we really dig into the details of that article that you and Zyron co-wrote, which I thought was great. And like I said, we'll, we'll get into the many details that you all put on display there. Um, just kind of give us a background of first what Antifa is and second, how the MLS is essentially in a way standing up against Antifa Um, with the new policy that they created in the fan conduct. Sure. Well, let's start with Antifa, like you said. And Antifa stands for anti-fascist. And it's a bigger umbrella term. So basically, if you're listening and you oppose fascists, you're basically Antifa. You're anti-fascists. And so there's that bigger picture. Now, within that umbrella, and what often Antifa gets reduced to, is activists who use the black block tactic, which is to say they dress up in black, often have masks and and covers over their faces, 
and they show up at protests and they engage in defensive actions when the right wing shows up in Portland. So a lot of people, when they th hear the word Antifa, that is exactly where their mind goes. But there's been a lot of discussion here in Portland about how to broaden that term so that people don't simply think of that, but think of the everyday anti-fascists as the popular mobilization group here in Portland, or pop mob as they're also known, right. has been really pushing that hashtag, hashtag everyday anti-fascists. Yeah. So um, when it comes to Major League Soccer, they put a rule into effect right ahead of the new season, so back in the spring, and it basically said that you could not have political banners or signs in the stadiums. It's important to note, I think, that it is the only league in North America that has that kind of rule in the fan conduct manual that bans political speech. Wow. So there's that. And, and right away, it got the attention of fans group fan groups like Timbers Army and the supporters groups from Seattle that have kind of a, a big political push inside of the organization. And so when they saw political, they thought, hmm, because there's plenty of stuff in the fan code of conduct that outlaws racism, right. that it outlaws homophobia, and, you know, basically outlaws negative behavior toward marginalized groups in society. And there's no discussion around that. Which would probably more or less align with the left or anti-fascist. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, you know, if you're going to attack marginalized groups, you you're probably are uh, on the right side of the political spectrum. That's right. certainly how it plays out in terms of politics right now yeah. in the United States <laughs> and across the world. For so, sure. Absolutely. So there's this little political element of the fan code. And the Portland Timbers had a really strange schedule this year because they were refurbishing the stadium. And so they didn't have any home games for 12 games. They played 12 away matches. And so this kind of simmered on the, on the back burner for the first part of the season. But definitely people within Timbers Army and folks in general in Portland were thinking about it. So when they approached, the Timbers Army approached the ownership of, of the Portland Timbers, which is Merritt Paulson and his dad, Henry Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary, and asked them to reconsider and not push that policy of no political signage in the stadiums, they didn't get the result they wanted. Right. The Paulsons decided to sort of toe the MLS line and go along with that rule that says no political signage, including the Iron Front. And so that's really the background that helps us understand what happened when Portland played against Seattle just a couple weekends ago when there was silence for those first 33 minutes of the match. Wow. And, and, and I want you to kind of paint that picture because I've been to maybe four or five Timbers matches, and those matches – tend to be really, really loud mm -hmm. <laughs> from start to finish. I mean, there's not a quiet moment throughout a match. And so you are obviously there. You attend majority of the Timbers matches, and you got to experience the uniqueness of the Timber Stadium actually being quiet. And it wasn't just the matter that it was quiet because I've been there when they played against Seattle, LF LAFC, a few other teams, but Seattle in particular, there's a big rivalry there. So describe kind of the uniqueness of the Timbers Army, which obviously supports the Portland Timbers, and the Seattle Sounders fans coming together mm -hmm. <laughs> and banding together and essentially just being quiet for the first 33 minutes of that match and why the number 33 is important mm -hmm. as to why they took that amount of time to just shut up, essentially. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, so for starters, it was stunning. It was haunting. It, it was downright freaky to be in the stadium against the arch-rival Seattle Sounders when Timbers Army is not chanting. The drums are not 
getting beaten. Uh, there's just no collective joy, which is usually part of the scene there. It's always part of the scene, quite yeah. honestly, in, in the Timbers matches. What was also particularly stunning is that the small section that's allotted to the supporters group from the visiting side, in that case, of course, Seattle, was also quiet, which is to say Timbers Army actually negotiated behind the scenes with the Emerald City supporters group from Seattle and Guerrilla FC, their two major supporters groups, and they agreed to be quiet as well for, for those first 33 minutes. Wow. So it was silence in places in the stadium when it's usually super, super rambunctious. And, you know, the 33 minutes as you said, is symbolic because in 1933, that's when Adolf Hitler banned the Iron Front symbol from German life. Before that, it was used as a way to rally folks against the incipient burgeoning fascism that was occurring in Germany. And people, when they saw that symbol, they realized that they were against Hitler and against the oncoming uh, onslaught of fascism in that country. So that's what right. that 33 minutes symbolized. And I'll tell you what, uh, 33 minutes is a long time yes. in a 90-minute match. <laughs> yes, it is. And so, that's a third of the, of the match, essentially, a little more than a third, but right around there. Yeah. That is a long time. And, and it's interesting because, I, like I said, I've been to some Timbers matches. A lot of the times I've, I've been with you, actually, and your seats are actually near where the Timbers Army is located mm -hmm. in the stadium. But I've also gotten to attend Timbers matches as media, and I got mm -hmm. to be in the press box. And the press box is more so near where the opposing fan base is. And the opposing fan bases tend to be very loud, too. Like I said, I just think the atmosphere in that arena, I mean, in that uh, stadium, really leads to kind of just the fans yapping back and forth and that's just the culture of professional soccer mm -hmm. is for it to be really, really loud from start to finish, which kind of makes sense because uh, some way, somehow the fans have to keep themselves entertained. Not, not, no knock to soccer here, hey but, now, it's a, <laughs> but, but it's a sport that there isn't a lot of scoring in. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes sense that you would have these fan bases just be really, really loud because um, if you're, you know, more of a soccer kind of connoisseur, or if you're an ex-professional soccer player that played on the U.S. national team like Jules Boykoff is, you can kind of dig deeper into the minute details of the sport. But if you're somebody that just wants to go out and attend a sporting event, such as a Timbers match, most of the time you like to see a sport that has a lot of scoring. When it doesn't have a lot of scoring, the fans kind of fill that void and keep the liveliness of the atmosphere going forward. Um, so it's really interesting just to really hear that because I'm trying to picture it and I can't, I just cannot picture the stadium, you know, not being just loud just yeah. from start to finish. Um, but I actually kind of want to backtrack a little bit because, um, August 17th. So a few weeks ago, there was actually a rally that had nothing to do with the Timbers per se or the MLS per se. But there was a rally, um, the Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, Prayer a couple of far-right groups um, planned a protest and a rally right here in Portland that you got to cover and be a part of, that I got to see and witness myself over at Street Roots um, because Patriot Prayer kind of showed up near Street Roots and tried to, you know, do some chanting. Mm -hmm. And Antifa actually more or less came to the defense of Street Roots mm -hmm. and essentially protected our organization because we tend to um, have some more so leftist ideologies and, 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 and we just kind of lean more so that way. Um, but kind of talk about 
the atmosphere that day mm-hmm. and how that might have an impact and an influence on what we saw take place in Timber Stadium against the Sounders. Absolutely. I think it's crucial to understanding what happened in the stadium, and you really can't fully understand it without talking about what happened on the 17th. So as many of your listeners will know, there's been an influx of right-wing groups like Patriot Prayer, like the Proud Boys, like the American Guard, which is basically a neo-Nazi group, coming to Portland to flex a little bit in public and try to get people to push back on them. And they've been, I guess you might say, successful in getting attention. They've certainly gotten a lot of media attention, that, that's for sure. And Timber's Army, a lot of folks were down there from Timber's Army that day at the, the protest event where Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys were. And I was down there too. I will tell your, your listeners, um, if, since you can't see me, that I'm a, I'm a white man in my 40s. And you know I could use the social currency of my skin to get right up close to them without getting any pushback or flack whatsoever. Right. Took a bunch of pictures, saw for myself you know, what people were talking about, saw a standoff between some anti-fascist protesters who were right in the face of a bunch of Proud Boys. And it got pretty tense there for a while. And I was yeah. wondering if I was going to have to jump in and intervene. So it was really an intense moment. And the Portland police allowed the right-wing protesters to cross the Hawthorne Bridge, which was previously closed. And then they only swerved their way back around, uh, back across to the side of the river where Street Roots is. And next thing we knew, just like you said, uh, it was supposed to be a safe space. In fact, Devon, you deserve a lot of the credit for that. You helped organize a potluck for yeah. vendors, many of whom you know, stay right there under the Morrison Bridge and where there was going to be that big protest that day. Right. And you created a safe space for them. Well, little did we know that Joey Gibson was going <laughs> to yeah. walk up from Patriot Prayer with his big U.S. American flag on his shoulder and you know, trying to basically stir up some issues there in Old Town, which usually doesn't happen. People don't come down to Old Town. They right? don't come that far. And that's what I was hearing because there have been a lot of protests here in Portland and usually the protests don't come as far as Old Town. And actually Old Town was pretty much a ghost town with the exception of us being open at Street Roots, as you mentioned, uh, me overseeing the mm-hmm. vendor program and many of our vendors being homeless. I wanted to create a safe space where they didn't have to be on the streets in the case that there were any violence taking place um, because there were certainly threats of violence mm-hmm. uh that were going to take place. Fortunately, it never happened to a national extent, um, Mm -hmm. as we've seen with a lot of these mass shootings that have gotten national headlines. But um, we had to, you know, be cautious because, for one, there have been so many mass shootings taking place nationally. Mm -hmm. And then you had the threats of mass shootings uh, and and violence taking place at this particular rally. Um, But that morning, it was interesting because that morning, President Trump, I hate that I'm calling him president, but let's just say 45 for lack of a better term. (laughs) Um, Really not lack of a better term because he doesn't deserve a better term, but we'll just call him 45 for now. Um, That morning, he actually tweeted, and I'm paraphrasing here. I should have pulled it up, but um, he essentially tweeted that um, that they were keeping a close eye. The White House was going to be keeping a close eye on the city of Portland that day and that Antifa needed to be considered as a domestic terrorist group Mm -hmm. and that he hoped that the mayor of Portland, which happens to be Ted Wheeler, um, would make the right choices and do the right things that day in the city of Portland. Now, when I saw it that morning, as you mentioned, I didn't necessarily foresee 
the rally coming right to our street corner where we reside at Street Roots because I was aware that that usually doesn't happen. Fortunately, we had some folks from Antifa that contacted us and kind of gave us a heads up when Patriot uh, Prayer uh, and the Proud Boys were starting to come our way. You actually uh, stayed in contact with myself and your wife, Kai, who is our executive director at Street Roots and kind of was able to let us know, you know, when things, the heat was starting to get a little Mm -hmm. closer to where we resided at at the time. And it was super interesting because when the Proud Boys came and started doing their chants and having their flags and tried to kind of stir some things up over at Street Roots, Antifa showed up in numbers Mm -hmm. and the police also showed up in numbers. And there was a lady that was a part of Antifa who pulled up on a motorcycle. And as she pulls up on this motorcycle, she revs her engine as loud as she possibly Mm -hmm. could. And anybody that Mm -hmm. stood next to a motorcycle knows how loud that could be. Imagine somebody intentionally revving their engine as loud as they possibly could to drown out the noise of the chants. Now, unfortunately, the police were there in numbers and they had a loudspeaker as well. And so her motorcycle engine was so loud that it actually drowned out the police being able to communicate to this large group of people to try to keep things under control. So you couldn't hear their loudspeaker either. So the police end up arresting this lady right in front of our office. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know what happened to the lady after that, but it was just kind of an interesting scenario and an interesting dynamic. And even more so interesting to see Trump tweet in the morning that Antifa was this domestic terrorist group. And then Antifa show up to our organization at Street Roots and ultimately defend us um, from having to interact with the Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys. So what I kind of want to ask you, knowing that Trump strangely, strangely tends to have an effect on things is what is the effect that you see Trump having on the MLS making this decision, having tweeted what he did that morning on August 17th, leading up to that protest and rally? Yes. So Trump's tweet the morning of the 17th about how Antifa is a terrorist organization as far as he's concerned, very much structured permission for all manner of right-wing groups to carry out all sorts of acts against those who are Antifa. It structures permission for even illegal behavior. And I can tell you, having been down at the protests, like I said, right up next to these folks, some of them held signs that said, quite simply, Antifa equals terrorists. Wow. And so you could almost see the visual reverberation of what Trump had tweeted in the morning. And let's get a couple of things straight. Yeah. The folks who are showing up at these rallies are threatening violence all the time. They're very public about wanting to smash the heads of immigrants on the sidewalk, for example, is one thing that they've said. Right. Attacking particular groups of people from Latin America as well. And let's be clear about another thing, which is, as you said, Antifa provides a lot of support and protection for folks. That's kind of the whole point, is to put the body on the line. And so with Rose City Antifa communicating to the folks at Street Roots, they didn't have to do that. No, they didn't. No, they were going out of their way to help. And it's not the first time that Antifa has done this sort of thing. If you think back to Charlottesville... The same thing that the thing that Trump said was, you know, there's good people on both sides, right. a sort of both sidesarism. If you talk to Cor- Dr. Cornell West, who's a big activist in the United States, 
He said that it, were it not for Antifa that day, he might have been in harm's way. Like wow. they put themselves out there and they protected Dr. Cornell West and the folks that he was protesting with. And so, you know, if you want to have Major League Soccer reduce Antifa to those that are using the black block tactic, dressing up in black, putting masks on their face, if you want to allow him to do that, you're kind of missing the fact that they're doing vital work in society. And I want to make it really clear. I am absolutely not against the black block tactic. I think it makes a lot of sense in some circumstances to use it. Why would we ask a person of color to put themselves out there, put their face out there for any old person to take a picture of and be able to track down later and harass at their workplace right. and so on? What I'm saying is there are good reasons for those in society to wear masks at particular times. Right. And so just a side note, you know, there's been discussions here in Portland with Daniel Outlaw who's saying, like, we need to get rid of masks potentially. I very much disagree with that. I think it's like a First Amendment issue. You should be able to wear a mask if you want to. And there's people that really should be wearing masks yeah. for their own protection. So, you know, I guess you could say that, that I'm really sympathetic to the, those tactics in particular instances when they're defensive tactics and it's not just unleashing violence willy-nilly. I mean, I don't think anyone has a lot of patience for that. Well, some do, but I, I want to make those, those two points. And I'm, I I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. Trump is, with his Twitter feed, basically creating the news cycle. Yeah. And it's hard to get off of that train because he's saying such outrageous things. And what's maybe a little bit dangerous about it is, obviously, like I say, it structures permission for people who are, have a propensity for violence to actually engage in violence. But it also has this sort of distractive effect where we're t talking about like the map that they apparently used a Sharpie on to bring Alabama in for the hurricane. And little things like that that really don't matter as much except that they're blatant lies and our president is telling them. Instead of the fact that they're pushing a tax cut, which is for the rich, instead of the fact that they're gutting environmental laws that affect all of us. Yeah. And so there's this sort of distractive effect that I think is important about Trump's Twitter feed as well. But it's hard to avoid it. It's hard to avoid it. It's hard to avoid it. But yeah, like, like I said, very interesting because I feel like um, Trump has had his moments when kind of uh, digging into politics, especially when it comes to sports and that intersection mm -hmm. um, where he's been outspoken. Um, he had a moment, what I would say, of arrogance where he was pretty much wrong when he talked about the Golden State Warriors not showing up to the White House or uninviting them to the White mm -hmm. House. And then they actually didn't go. But the Warriors had already said that they weren't going to the White House had they won that championship in 2018 anyway. And so that was just an arrogant moment from Trump, which is no surprise there. But you've also obviously had other moments. You've had moments such as uh, Trump being outspoken against Jamel Hill while she was working for ESPN. Now, I think Jamel Hill navigated through that beautifully, and I think she kind of counteracted that beautifully but at the time, she did still essentially lose her job. Um, it was an agreement, so I won't say like she got fired or laid off, but mm -hmm. um, I think that was a huge part in her no longer having a job at ESPN. Obviously, Colin Kaepernick, and we've heard Trump be outspoken with Kaepernick. Kaepernick still doesn't have a job, um, and we'll get into kind of the Jay-Z stuff a little bit later, but obviously Trump befriends a lot of the NFL owners, um, probably a lot of it having to do with the capital that they all have obtained <laughs> over time. And, you know, Kaepernick still doesn't have a job in the NFL today. Um, but can you kind of call out any other moments 
where Trump might have been sort of outspoken and it could be in the sports realm with Mm -hmm. politics or it can just be in any other political realm where he's kind of been outspoken and it's led to these sort of bad decisions, I would say, um, being made such as the one that we've seen from the MLS here uh, in Major League Soccer. Yeah, I mean, I think the through line behind what you said there is that Trump tends to attack athletes of color. The examples you gave, black athletes, black commentators, he's got no problem attacking black folks, people of color, but he doesn't necessarily speak out when it's a white athlete saying something. Did you Mm. see him attacking Chris Long for the National Football League, who's been very outspoken about some of the very same issues that Kaepernick has? Does he go after Chris Long? No. Raysim Bowden, just a few weeks ago at the Pan Am Games, he's a fencer from the United States. When he was up collecting his gold medal, he went down on one knee in solidarity with Kaepernick. And for all the reasons that Kaepernick raised about racial inequality, structural inequality, and how the police are meeting out force against people of color in disproportionate ways, did Trump go after race in Bowdoin? No, he didn't. Just let the whole moment pass. Yeah. You know, maybe the one exception is the attention that Trump gave to Megan Rapinoe and some of the people in the women's soccer team when they were speaking out against wanting to visit the White House and just speaking out against his homophobic policies and outlook right. and so on. So, But there's definitely a, a sort of racist through line behind a lot of the people that he tends to attack. And mm-hmm. I think it absolutely has to be just said out loud that yeah. that's what's going on here. 100%, 100%. Now, I do want to kind of take this into a little bit of a different direction because I just mentioned the decision that Jay-Z made um, with the NFL and there's a correlation there to the Timbers, Jeremy Abobasi, who I happened mm-hmm. to recently interview at Street Roots and I mean, it's never too late to go check that article out. I've promoted it a bunch here on this podcast, but um, I thought he was very nuanced with some of the things that he had to say in that article. But Ibobasi, on the match when they played against the Seattle Sounders, um, he actually wore a I'm with Cap shirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think the timing was interesting because obviously I think there's been a lot of co- confusion, especially within sort of the culture and people kind of picking sides when it comes to supporting Colin Kaepernick or supporting Jay-Z's most recent partnership um, with the NFL. Um, But for him to also wear that on the day, wear that shirt on the day that the Timbers Army were essentially going to be protesting, Mm -hmm. um, I kind of do want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the symbolism of Jeremy Abobasi wearing that shirt and kind of what are your thoughts right now when it comes to kind of the back and forth that Mm -hmm. folks are having uh, Mm -hmm. because of Jay-Z's newest partnership with the NFL? Well, first of all, that interview that you did with Jeremy Abobasi for Street Roots is gold, and everyone who's listening should check it out, track it down online. He's a really interesting and thoughtful guy. Absolutely. you know, you ask just the right questions to, to get him to speak. So it's, it's really good. I think it's really important that he wore an I'm with Cap jersey that day. Yeah. It was a politicized day, just like you're saying. There were other Timbers players, for example, Zarek Valentin, a defender on the team, who actually wore a shirt with the Iron Front symbol on the front wow. as he walked into the locker room, as did Abobasi. And I think 
when we talk about Kaepernick, when I talk about Kaepernick, I always also try to say the issues that animated and continue to animate Kaepernick out loud. So it doesn't just become this sort of media meme of Kaepernick, right? Right. And we try to say it in a different way every time, you know, because the issues that he's raising didn't go away since he started raising him in August 2016. That's for damn sure. So um, I think it's really important that Obobese was wearing that shirt because, A, it shows support for Kaepernick is not going away. B, it shows that players are in line and ready to sort of step out on political issues at a highly politicized moment with Timber's Army. And, you know, third, I think it just says that, hey, players are not going to just uh, check their brains in at the door when they show up at these matches. They're political humans, many of them, and they're not just going to give that up. And, you know, I don't think they should have to. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting point. Um, do you have any thoughts on kind of the argument that is happening, though, uh, between kind of Kaepernick's camp? Mm-hmm. Because Kaepernick doesn't say too much. And Jay-Z and some of the things that he's kind of come out and spoken about as to why he decided to partner with the NFL. Yeah. Well, I think personally I would side more with Kaepernick and the causes that he's raised than, than Jay-Z and the way he's approached things. I think you mentioned Dave Zirin before, who's a a terrific writer. He's the sports editor at The Nation magazine, and you mentioned I wrote this article with him. You know, he's been a writing friend of mine for a long time and a good friend of mine. And he, I think, wrote a really excellent article on this topic. And basically he says, look, Jay-Z is a capitalist, and so he's acting like a capitalist. And if we think about it through that frame about accruing capital, about making money, about expanding your brand, what he's doing makes perfect sense. Now, maybe he's got a long game in mind, and I'm open to that possibility, uh, but the short game doesn't seem to really be there in terms of the justice side. Right. There's been He's rolled out a few people. Meek Mill is going to be putting out a little bit of a short record, I guess, with a few yeah, other yeah. people. Yeah, Rhapsody. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I'm, and, I'm aware. and the proceeds will go to you know some of these social justice projects. Right. I mean, come on. That's pretty weak tea. I mean, Jay-Z is like a multimillionaire. He could just give he's the money directly. He's he? a billionaire now. Well, even more reason, just give the money over. You don't need to launder it through the NFL if you yeah. care about these things. And I'm you know, he does support causes, don't get me wrong. But so I guess overall, I'm pretty sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic to the issues and that Kaepernick and Eric Reed and other folks have been been raising. And I just under, I think I understand, like like Dave Zyron put it, that uh, Jay Z's a capitalist and capitalists are going to capitalist. <laughs> it, it's interesting you say that because I'm somebody who doesn't necessarily consider myself as an activist, um, and I actually kind of take pride in that, especially. Um, as a broadcaster, a personality, you name it. Um, but I definitely am in tune with a lot of activists such as yourself um, and many others. And I think that's also a part of the reason why I don't consider myself an activist because the people that I do respect as activists, I think I got a long way to go to get to where they are <laughs> um, as far as, you know, kind of not just their stances, but the work that they actually put into becoming activists. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as for me, I I more so um, kind of came up seeing things through more of like a cultural lens um, and then obviously more of a sports lens, which there's an intersection there, but um, I was more so heavier on kind of the sports and culture lens than I was on the political lens. So um like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested and I'm definitely starting to navigate a lot more through kind of 
um, the political side of things, especially when it comes to these intersectionalities. But I still don't consider myself to be the person that's all the way where I need to be to consider myself an activist. And maybe I'm shooting high because I'm fortunate to know some folks that um, have some pretty decent platforms mm-hmm. in the world of activism. And so for me, that's who I kind of look towards when I decide, you know, how and where I need to be mm-hmm. to become that person. But right now I'm just not, at least I don't consider myself to be. So I actually was more so in support of Jay-Z um, because I know the cultural influence that Jay-Z has. Mm-hmm. And I understand the social justice influence that he has had too, because he has had some, um, but just to be able to kind of see Jay-Z and how he's navigated, um, not only at being able to kind of become this billionaire and have a seat amongst these other billionaires who might be Trump supporters and in some cases might even be nasty people or just flat out capitalists. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to be able to see somebody come from a culture that essentially I feel like I come from and relate to and finally sort of have a seat at that table to be able to try to create a splash and create a wave. I trust Jay-Z to ultimately make a difference. Um, And if he doesn't make a difference during his lifetime, I trust that he'll hopefully make a difference for future generations and it'll sort of be a legacy thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But also uh, just kind of piggybacking a little bit more on that entire situation. Jay-Z also is somebody who's a sports agent. The NFL is still 70% African American. Mm-hmm. He represents a lot of these players that are in the NFL. So I felt like he has a pulse on kind of the movement that those players and kind of the impact that those players want to make within the sport, but they may not be capitalists or mm-hmm. may not have the capital as some of their owners where Jay-Z more so is starting to align with those owners when it comes to his capital because he's now a billionaire. So for me, I'm still kind of navigating through Mm -hmm. this thing and I understand the frustrations of Kaepernick's camp and you along with many of my other kind of activist friends and even just some people that I respect and admire through kind of the media landscape that tend to be more so activists um, are more so all siding with Kaepernick and I truly understand that. But I just always felt like I had to, well, so far up to this point, I felt like I had to kind of stand up for Jay-Z a little bit, mm-hmm. not because I want this to be a Jay-Z versus Kaepernick thing, but because of kind of how I can relate to Jay-Z and what it is that he's at least attempting to do. I still want to sort of support him in that because I see a lot of myself and what he's doing as well. Somebody that's more so come from the culture, has immersed himself into social justice, and now is kind of taking on a platform that's probably bigger than he'd ever seen himself taken when he first became a rapper back mm-hmm. in the 90s. Because even with what I do and kind of some of the stuff we talked about with street roots and things of that sort, I can't say that I ever saw that coming um, as far as you know, just me personalizing things in mm-hmm. my own world and how I've kind of gotten a voice in the world of politics here locally in the city of Portland. So 
I don't know. It's just some interesting dynamics yeah. that are there for me to where I'm not going to quite roll on Jay-Z just yet. Right, in fact, no. I actually more or less support him and what it is that he's trying to do. And I still support Cap, too. And right. I think that you can do both, personally. Yes, I, and I, th- I think that's really important, Devon, that it's not necessarily an either-or. We don't have to make it a binary, a dichotomy here. Right. Um, and, you know, you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, and, you know, he's done good work, and he probably deserves the benefit of the doubt. All I'm saying is that, yes, he's gotten a seat at the table, yeah. but so far the meal is still Kaepernick. He's not got a job, and he's not getting a lot of play. And I just can't help but look at Jay-Z and the way he's approached this and some of the things that he said, especially at that initial press conference, which I didn't think was his most elegant moment, where it really harkens to this quote that's etched in my mind from a writer named Susan Douglas that is capitalism's strength perhaps its greatest is its ability to co-opt and domesticate opposition to transubstantiate criticism into a host of new marketable products. That was a lot of big words she just used right there. (laughs) The short of it is... I I, I get it, but but tell us what the short of it is. The short of it is, you know, co-optation. It's like watering down something that was a really strong message, and that's, I guess, what I fear a little bit. But you're right. I mean, if I can use a cliche, you know, time will tell on this, and maybe he does have a long game and you know if anyone does he's a smart guy obviously and and maybe he does have a long game but you know in the short term I haven't seen anything that's been quite as encouraging as as I might hope but hey I'm with you on the not seeing it as an either or yeah yeah for sure um I want to circle back to major league soccer because there's actually some news that came out in the last 24 hours uh surrounding uh the iron front symbol and surrounding some of the protests that have actually been happening, um, not just at the Sounders match, but actually, what was it was Salt Lake that they put that they mm-hmm. played against most recently at home, right? That's Where right. There were some fans that had flags mm-hmm. with the Iron Front symbol. Um, there were some suspensions that have taken place mm-hmm. within the last twenty four hours, mm-hmm. um, and just a few hours ago. The Timbers Army came out with a statement in regards to those suspensions that took place of the fans. And then, yeah, and I want to be clear, there was a suspension of fans right. that actually were waving those flags at the lo- at the most recent Timbers match. Um, can you kind of just talk about that a little bit? And I see you have the statement there from I do. what the Timbers Army has come out with since those suspensions have taken place. Right. So like you said, Major League Soccer issued three game bans to a bunch of fans in Portland who raised and and flailed those flags bearing the Iron Cross front or the Iron Front symbol rather uh, last Saturday at the match against Salt Lake City. So they gave three game bans. And so Timbers Army, like you said, just issued a statement a few moments ago. And I'm just going to read a couple key things to look forward to to this weekend because yeah. the Timbers play Kansas City on Saturday night. And uh, it says, in protest of the league's decision, the Timbers Army will fly no flags of any sort or deploy any smoke for goal celebrations this Saturday. Our focus this weekend will be on education. We'll use banners with words instead of symbols to remind the world of our unwavering opposition to fascism and to discrimination. And they also put forward what they're going to continue to push for. They've really had three planks. And they'll say, they said they'll continue to insist, as a quote from their, their statement, they'll continue to insist that the league change its policy regarding the Iron Front image, 
that the word political be removed from the fan code of conduct and that the league consult with marginalized groups, representatives of supporter groups, and experts in human rights to create a fan code of conduct that is inclusive and anti-discriminatory. So in short, the fight will continue, yeah. and you're going to see some pushback at the match this weekend against Kansas City. Now, I'm glad you actually mentioned the fight continuing, and uh, you actually talked about this in the article, and we hadn't brought this up yet. Um, you talked a little bit about Merritt Paulson mm-hmm. um, and kind of his role and how he felt amongst all of this. And the match against Seattle, um, which was before the Salt Lake match, I want to make sure I'm keeping things chronologically in right. order here. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the match against Seattle, when there was a 33-minute protest that you mentioned earlier, you talked about the symbolization of the 33 minutes. Um, Merritt Paulson actually was mad about it because mm-hmm. the Timbers ended up losing that match to their rivals right down the, right down Highway 5 in Seattle. Um, can you kind of talk about Merritt Paulson and what his stance has sort of been mm-hmm. um, since these protests and since this fight has started uh, from the Timbers Army amongst other Major League Soccer fans? Yeah, so the front office of the Timbers, including, of course, Merritt Paulson, is in a bit of a tough space because Major League Soccer has issued this rule and it would be really tough for them to push back against Major League Soccer, although I think they could actually do it. And like you said, he shows up after the match, his emotions are high, and there's multiple eyewitnesses that said he kind of excoriated these fans, yelling at them and basically blaming them for the loss. And he later slightly walked back in a sorry-not-sorry kind of set of statements that he gave to a reporter at the Oregonian um, but, you know, he made his sentiments known that he felt like the, the Timbers Army had basically screwed the game because they lost. The wow. Timbers lost to Seattle, <laughs> yeah. wow. which is kind of funny in the way that because he, if he really believes what he said, he's basically acknowledging the fact that Timbers Army's rambunctious support is really important to the Timbers. Yeah. <laughs> so why are you going to walk over to them and start yelling and getting in their face about how they messed up? He was actually using all sorts of words that were worse than messed up, I guess. They're Probably saying some so, swear words. Indeed, that's what people are saying who, who actually saw it for themselves so you know he he's you know I guess one way of looking at it is he cares and he's not just one of those owners who lives in another city who just collecting his money and not caring about it right but sometimes it can spill over and there's been a little bit of a fraught relationship with Merritt Paulson and some of the people in Timbers Army that aren't happy with the way he's proceeded on multiple affronts so you know that's a that's an ongoing relationship you're exactly right and we'll see what happens here this coming weekend and how he reacts to the silence, the no banners, and the, and the no smoke if there's a goal. Hopefully there will be a goal, and then Yeah, and we'll, then we'll, we'll see. really see. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I'm hoping so. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really hoping so. Um, well, yeah, so we will actually take a quick break here, and Jules, Dr. Boykoff, is actually going to uh, join me in the Take an L segment. All That's right. a segment that we do on every episode <laughs> here. You're well aware of it, and... Uh, Like I said, thank you very much, actually, for your breakdown of kind of what's been going on. And I really hope that uh, my listeners will really pay close attention to what's going on because Major League Soccer, first and foremost, is a big deal. Um, I think the city of Portland happens to be the hub of a lot of kind of this left, right, back and forth that's going place politically in this country. And we're starting to see a lot of events unfold right here in Portland that I think can really kind of give folks an outlook on where we are nationally in this country, um, especially with who we have in the White House currently. Um, so I, I would really encourage my listeners to really continue to pay close attention 
to what's going on in Major League Soccer because um, I think it's a really important time right now. Um, but like I said, we'll take a quick break. And next up, we will have our Take and L segment. So keep it locked, y'all. It's the Wake Up and Win podcast with Devon Pouncey. Keep it locked, folks, as we continue to give you a winning formula. It's the Wake Up and Win podcast. Visit ThatCast.com for more great content on ThatCast Network. And we're back. And it is our world-famous Take an L segment. (laughs) (laughs) Getting ready to take place here on the Wake Up and Win podcast where we talk about who took a loss this week. Uh, and it could be in anything. It could be in sports. It could be in politics. It could be in music. It could be in all of the above. We don't like to have any limitations when it comes to this uh, segment in particular. And you know what? Taking a loss isn't always such a bad thing. Sometimes folks can you know, turn losses into lessons. So um, don't consider it a segment where we just want to come out and bash people and be shock jocks and just talk shit on people, essentially. Um, We actually just, you know, we like to bring out some of the not-so-good things to maybe give perspective on other things that should be um, having a little bit more light shown on it. So that's not to say we might not be talking shit on people either, though. So uh, let me make that very clear as well. We might be talking bad about you. but That's my plan. <laughs> and so, and I'll let Jules get us started in okay. talking bad about somebody. So, um, Jules, let's get started. Who do you have taken a nail this week? All right, well, first of all, I'm thrilled to be able to do this. I can honestly say, Devon, that I have listened to every single episode of Wake Up and Win, and I never wow. knew if I'd be able to do the Take an L segment, so I'm pretty thrilled to be here right now. Um, well, you are greatly appreciated for listening. And we got over 70 episodes of this podcast. So for you to have listened to every single one, um, I'm actually honored to hear that. So thank you very much for being such an avid supporter of this podcast. It is my pleasure. And so I'm going to take the opportunity then to do two Take an L's if Go I can. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> all Give right. it your all. <laughs> for, for starters, I want to stay on theme here for a bit and talk about Major League Soccer taking an L for me here. Yeah. This rule against political banners and its defense by the Timbers' ownership is drenched in selective morality. One thing I didn't bring up before is that all 22 Major League Soccer teams in the United States have been wearing camouflage warm-up jerseys this year to honor the military. So there's politics in the stadium, no doubt about it. Earlier this month, Alejandro Bedoya, a player on the uh, Philadelphia Union, after he scored a goal, he ran over, found a hot mic, and he yelled into it something like, Congress, let's end gun violence. Not only was he not reprimanded by the league, but he actually won Player of the Week honors that week. And so my point is only this. Major League Soccer is not against politics. It's a particular type of politics, and that tends to be Antifa has been been the type that they don't like. So that's why I'm saying it's selective morality. My second take in L, I have to say, is the Merritt ownership, Merritt Paulson and uh, Henry Paulson ownership team. And this for something else, it didn't really come up because – the rule against political banners in, in the stadiums does not apply to the Portland Thorns, nor does it apply to the Timbers 2, which is sort of like the second division team of Portland Timbers. And yet, the Portland ownership has decided to apply that rule, no iron front symbols and political banners, on those leagues anyways. And the reason that they gave, I find to be just totally weak tea. Uh, They say that it's going to be better for the workers at Providence Park. Having the same rules will just be easier for them. But if you think about it, even for just a little bit 
uh, it's pretty hollow what they're saying. First of all, it sounds kind of condescending, if you ask me, to stadium workers, as if they have these tiny little brains that can't quite shift gears from day to day. <laughs> Obviously, they can. Second right. of all, if you, they don't have to enforce the rule at Thorns matches or Timbers 2, their life is actually going to be a lot easier. Yeah. So by having them have to be stressed out and enforcing the rule at those games, you're actually inflicting stress on them. You're not making it easier for these workers. So right. come on. We're not stupid. Yeah. We can sit down and think about this. And, you know, Paulson's, you get to take an L on that. Thank you very much. You had some really good stuff there and way to stay on theme. I appreciate you so much for that. And I'm glad you got to get it out of you because <laughs> you listened to... Now, we haven't been doing the Take an L segment for all 70 episodes, but we've been doing it for a little while now. And I'm glad that you got to kind of get your shit off there and join <laughs> us here on this segment. Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, Thank for you. For sure. For sure. So for me, I am actually going to go in a little bit of a different direction and I'm not going to stay on theme. And I am going to give my L to an artist by the name of Azalea Banks. Um, Azalea Banks is a pretty well known and, and prominent artist. Well, she used to be at least. Um, and she's somebody who actually has not been too ashamed of being outspoken. Now, there is a new young lady who has just taken completely off by the name of Lizzo. Um, Lizzo happens to be, and she's open about this, so I'm not putting these characteristics out there to body shame her by any means, but um, Lizzo happens to be an artist who um, is a little bit heavier. She's a little bit on the heavier side, and she actually embraces that, and she really kind of pushes for self-love, um, but most importantly, she's really talented. She's a very talented singer. She's a very talented entertainer. And I've only seen her play the flute as an instrument, but boy, did she shred that flute hmm. when she decides to play it. I mean, I've seen her do a Tiny Desk concert, and she's done other Instagram videos. And uh, she actually did an Instagram video with Megan Thee Stallion, who is actually a rapper and who tends to be a little bit more on the ratchet side in certain ways. And she was twerking in the video while Lizzo was playing the flute. And it was just, you know, some pretty funny content there. But um, nonetheless, Lizzo has reached great success. Um, Lizzo has actually been charting. She's uh, been up there on the part, uh, the pop charts as of late. Um, and as I mentioned, her, her music tends to be more feel-goodish and has sort of a poppy element to it. Now, lately, she's been receiving criticism for pandering to white people with her music. Um, and Azalea Banks was one of those people that came out and criticized uh, Lizzo for pandering to white people. And I was a little bit disappointed in hearing Azalea Banks speak about Lizzo in that way because um, you see so much. You look at, let's take hip-hop, for example, which is now the number one streamed genre of music in the world. Um, there's no denying that hip-hop once was a genre that was more so pandering and selective for people of color, um, for people that grew up in neighborhoods and in inner-city neighborhoods, um, there was a huge political element that really kind of resided in hip-hop and its origins. And then you move forward, and now we're at a day and age where hip-hop has become essentially the most universal genre that we've come to know. 
And with that being the case, you're seeing a lot of white people, especially in particular, really kind of immerse themselves into the world of hip hop. And you're seeing them capitalize from immersing themselves in the world of hip hop. So now we have somebody such as Lizzo, who's an African-American lady, young woman, and she's more or less immersing herself in the world of pop, which wasn't necessarily black culture. It wasn't necessarily black music, but she's immersed herself in this world and she's having great success while immersing herself in it. And I don't think she's necessarily forgotten who she is or where she has come from while doing so, but to see her have the success in pop music as an African-American woman, especially, I think is phenomenal to see. And I think it's great that just the same way white folks can take advantage of being able to capitalize off of hip hop, which origins were more so pandering to black folks. And like I mentioned, inner city communities, I am not mad at Lizzo going into that field where white folks have dominated more or less and taking it over and, you know, having the success that she's having. And I just really don't like um, the criticism that she's receiving for having success and doing such a thing. Um, You know me, I like to personalize things a bit here on this podcast, and I feel like I can obviously relate um, because I'm somebody who works in a predominantly white field, (laughs) and I'm fortunate enough to still be able to work in that field and have had some success in that field. Mm -hmm. Trust me, I've hit rock bottom in that field too, but you know, I've been able to kind of be persistent and still uh, pursue my dreams in the sports media world and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm broadcasting at the NCAA level now. I'm doing TV mm-hmm. broadcasting. Mm-hmm. I've been in radio. And it was really interesting because I went back home to California last weekend. And we had an alumni game. And I grew up, my school that I went to in high school was more so suburban. But let's be real, I was a basketball player. Anybody that knows basketball knows that, you know, the black community has had some pretty good success within that sport. <laughs> I happened to go to a high school that was pretty darn successful. Majority of the players on our team was black. I mean, it just makes sense there. Um, But anywho, a lot of the teams that we played against in our conference especially um, happened to have a lot more of an inner city and an urban feel. Um, We were the better team in that conference, but all the other teams are black and African-American, and it was a city. It was a Vallejo versus Fairfield alumni game. Now, I grew up in Vallejo, and I went to school in Vallejo from elementary through my eighth grade year of middle school. Um, Vallejo was actually a city that, at the time that I was in about the seventh grade, had declared for bankruptcy. It was the first city in California to declare for bankruptcy. So I come from a sports family. Vallejo, I would say, is a sports city. A lot of great athletes have come out of the city of Vallejo, and Coincidentally, we were at a point in time where my family was going to have to move housing where where we were living at. And so it was a 50-50 chance that the schools in Vallejo, which is a lot more of an inner inner city, has a more of an inner city feel. Um, The schools in Vallejo, there was a 50-50 chance that because they went bankrupt, that um, the school district was going to be able to support support athletics. So... Mm -hmm. Had I gone to high school in Vallejo, there was a 50-50 chance that there would be no athletics. Mm. And so 
I transferred to this school in Fairfield in my last year in middle school, and I go through high school in the city of Fairfield. And so last week they had this alumni game, and when I tell you it was it was a packed house, um, there were black people everywhere. <laughs> there were people from the inner city and from the hood everywhere. Many of them I knew and I happened to grow up with. And it was sort of interesting because when I do the work that I do, I'm a pretty humble dude and I tend to kind of have some humility and I like to just keep my head down and continue to work hard because I don't necessarily feel that I've maximized my potential within the sports media landscape or even just the media landscape as a whole. But to go back home and get so much recognition from so many people that I grew up with in the inner city and them kind of be able to sort of look up and admire what it is that I've been able to do and accomplish here in Portland and what I would consider to be a majority white um, industry, it, it really kind of opened my eyes in a way that I've never really had them open before because, for one, I'm not home that often to mm -hmm. where I can be at an event where all of these people that I essentially grew up with are in the same place at the same time. It was just a great community event. Like I said, it was a packed house for the alumni game. But for two, just to be able to know uh, the impact that I'm having on my community, even from a distance, and you know, hearing folks come up to me and kind of asking me about how I got into the media field, and you know, and ask about um, you know what they should do and how they should start a podcast and how they've hmm, been wanting awesome. to start a podcast and things of that sort. Um, it really hit home for me wow. and it was really heartfelt for me. So to be able to see Lizzo doing that on a much bigger stage and from a musical level and know that she's able to have this effect and this impact and this influence on African-American women, on women who tend to get body shame more or less, on women who may not love themselves for whatever reason. And I won't, I won't even just narrow it down to just women, but I think it's important to to put some emphasis on that, but just the black community as a whole and people of color as a whole for her to be able to kind of make her way into this pop world and have the success that she's been having and be able to create her own platform and doing such a thing. I think it's foolish for Azalea Banks essentially to criticize her for doing such a thing when her impact is probably far greater um, than the criticism that she's receiving, especially hmm. from the the population of people that Azalea Banks may think that she's defending by taking shots at Lizzo. So hmm. I'm gonna give Lizzo an L for that because I'm gonna give Azalea. Can, uh, I'm gonna get yeah, I'm gonna give Azalea an L for that. Excuse me, because um, definitely not giving Lizzo an L. <laughs> <laughs> but I can kind of understand and relate um, what Lizzo is trying to do in turning what may have or could have been a negative situation into a positive because I tell people all the time, like I moved out here to Oregon because I felt that I needed to get away from home because I didn't think things were necessarily that positive and I didn't have the most positive influences because, you know, you had street politics and 
you know, things things tend to not be so good for folks sometimes in number, in inner city neighborhoods. And there's kind of that hood trauma and that street trauma that comes with that. Do I blame my people that I grew up with for that? No, I think that we can dig really, really deep into why things are the way they are in the hood. But nonetheless, I felt like I needed to get out. And now that I'm out and I'm able to come back home and get recognition from so many people from these communities that I know are, you know, prideful of where they come from, prideful of being folks of color and, you know, to be able to kind of just have that effect, I think was one of the best feelings that I could have ever had. And I think that Lizzo is portraying the same amongst many uh, oppressed communities. So um, Azalea Banks, you take an L. <laughs> wow. That was awesome, Devon. I love it. That's appreciate it. Appreciate great. it. Um, so what you got coming up, Joel? I mean, I know a lot is coming up, obviously, you know, in the world of politics and sports, football is coming back around, basketball won't be too far behind, um, but even more important and especially more or less dealing with your wheelhouse, um, 2020, you know mm-hmm. what that means, it's yep. the year for the Olympics, That's right. which you have written, how many is it, three or four books? Uh, three, I've got my fourth on the way here. Fourth on the way, so... so I don't know how much you can say about this fourth book that is on the way. I mean, is it something that you can kind of speak out on? Yeah. What stage or what? Pro- is it being published? Are you still writing? What stages are you at yeah. um, with this fourth book that you've written or are writing? Yeah, it's called The Games and It's Discontents, Democratic Socialists of America and the Fight Against L.A. 2028. So I'm finishing up my final final revisions on it they're due in about a week or so i'm feeling really good about it the democratic socialists of america is one of the most promising left formations that i've seen in my lifetime and really excited about the work that they're doing in los angeles around a whole host of issues from homelessness to the olympics and so i'm just putting the finishing touches on that and then i guess gearing up for tokyo themselves i was just there this summer with dave zyron we were doing a bunch of writing for the nation and for the la times about what we were seeing there in Tokyo a year out from the games. And so I guess I'll be just revving up my brain engine for that and and getting ready. Hey, I want to actually come out there to Tokyo with you and spend some time with you. Let's do it. I'm going to make a push for it. I I really am going to make a push for it um, because obviously I I, I admire and appreciate a lot of work that you do, a lot of the work that you do. Um, If I haven't told you before, I'll tell you now that you are – a huge reason and a huge influence in um, kind of why this podcast is created and why I've decided to take certain steps that I, am, I that I have in my career uh, from a sports element, from a political element, um, and just all out from you know somebody that works in the field of media as well. So um, yeah, I appreciate well, you. Thank for you. That. My goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's a real honor. Devon. I would definitely consider honor. you a mentor of mine. You know, when it comes to being able to navigate <laughs> through this media landscape. Well, let's get you over to Tokyo. You'll be the tallest man in Tokyo. Just about, <laughs> no, so. LeBron will probably be there. Oh yeah. All right. Uh, who else will be? <laughs> Giannis will probably be playing for his country. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, yeah, it'll be some basketball <laughs> players out there. <laughs> That's <Olympic>. true. <laughs> I might have been, now had I went with you this past summer, I might have been the tallest man right. in Tokyo. Well, but I think next year it'll be some damn good athletes out there that might surpass me. We'll make you the, the tallest man on the Tokyo subway. How about that? There we that? go, that'll work. I doubt that'll they'll work. be on the subway. Because they're not getting on the subway. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> all righty, all righty. Well, um, also just kind of, 
you know, tell them where to follow you on Twitter, social media, oh, sure. and things of that sort. So on Twitter, I'm Jules Boykoff, so J-U-L-E-S-B-O-Y-K-O-F-F. And I have a website that catalogs my writings, so if you want to check it out, it's just uh, JulesBoykoff.org. All righty, and I'm at Pounce underscore Station, or you can just search my name, Devon Pouncey, and I'll be there as well. Dr. Boykoff, thank you so, so much for joining us today and feeding us information in regards to what's happening in the MLS, amongst other things. Um, like I said, I always appreciate your perspective, and uh, thanks for also being an avid supporter of this podcast and listening to every episode, and I'm sure that won't end once this episode is released because you're on it, my friend. All right. Well, it's my great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Indeed, indeed. And on that note, I'm going to leave y'all the only way that I know how, and that is to stay woke and go win. Go win.